coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome into episode 25 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. The song that you hear playing right now is called Other Side by the band Race to the Moon. We'll have more from them later on the show as we are set to interview their lead singer, James Helsher. And also one thing that you might have noticed a little bit different from the intro is the tagline. Uh, We had a new voiceover performed uh, by Chris Grismer for Voice for Any Choice. You can check him out online. He does amazing voiceovers, great voiceover work, and uh, we'll hope to have him on a podcast here in the near future. Uh, But right now, uh, my name's Austin Statton. I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook, as always, and Jeremy Paxton. We'll have more from Zach Taylor later on in the show. But Jeremy, Kevin, how are you guys doing this week? Well, it's hard to see who should go first when you say the names in that order, because I feel like you said it at the top, Austin, Kevin, Jeremy, and then you said, Jeremy, Kevin, how are you doing? So I was confused, and I just wanted to jump in and make my voice heard immediately. I'm doing really well this week, and uh, of course, Race to the Moon, you guys may remember, they played with Second Lovers, a band we've also featured on this podcast, uh, another band we're big fans of, and uh, and I actually just bought their album, um, and I love it, and I've been gifting it to some friends, too, so you should go check them out on iTunes, uh, that song, Other Side, one of my personal favorites now, but uh, but good week for me. Uh, real busy, had to cover wrestling, not big wrestling fan, so I'm learning new things, and uh, I don't know. How are you guys doing? Uh, overall, a great week. Um, I'm a little under the weather today, as maybe you can hear my voice. Um, that is in no small, small part due to the performance of the Texans yesterday at the hands of the Chiefs. They were mangled, and I just I got so nauseous watching that game that I am still nauseous today. I, I just I can't even express in words how disappointed I am in uh, their performance. So as for me, I had a great week as well. Uh, definitely enjoyed everything except the Texans' devastating loss to the Kansas City Chiefs. Lost thirty to nothing, but we'll have more on that a little bit later. So we have an interview set up with Josh Cook, who was actually there covering the game. And uh, Josh has no relation to Kevin Cook. Actually, they're spelled a little bit differently. Uh, but looking forward to having him on the podcast as well. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we are going to have an interview with the band Race to the Moon. We're also going to talk a little bit about some stories that emerged this past week with El Chapo, Sean Penn, and Making a Murder. So we definitely have a lot packed in the show. Um, But as always, we want to give a special shout out to our sponsors, We Desserts. Make sure to go check them out at 3411 Kirby. Also, we want you to find us on Facebook. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. We definitely had a lot of feedback this week on the two podcasts that we produced, one with LA Coffee in episode 23, and also the interview with Sports Illustrated's Lynchy Snell in episode 24. As always, you can find us on facebook.com slash weekly Brewcast. You can also follow us on our Twitter and Instagram page. Search Weekly Brewcast on both. And as we mentioned last week, you can also check us out on our new website, www.weeklybrewcast.com. As always, we've got a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. Now, as we mentioned at the top of the show, both myself, Jeremy, and Kevin were all disappointed with the outcome of the Houston Texans' 30 to nothing loss on Saturday against the Kansas City Chiefs. It's seems like teams from Kansas City have been hurting Houston teams this past year. Of course, the Royals knocked out the Astros in five games uh, back in October. But now joining us on the Weekly Brew podcast to discuss the 30-0 blowout of the Texans yesterday is sports editor from the Houston community newspaper, Joshua Cook, who was at the game yesterday. Josh, what were some of your reactions just you know, being at the game, seeing the defense play well in the first half and then just all come apart in the second half? I think it was just mainly shock that they had played so well. I mean, this was a team that finished down the stretch 7-2, and two, and, you know, some people can say, well, that was against a very, you know, lowly Colts team and Jaguars team and Tennessee Titans team, and the division was the problem. But, I mean, they played really good football overall down the stretch. I think the defense was giving up just a little bit over eight points a game, and you had that feeling that they were coming into this game kind of as a redemption game. You know, the Chiefs had come in week one of the year, beat them 27-20 to 20 at home, and you felt like this Texans team was a lot better than that Texans team that played that first game. Because, I mean, you remember, you had Brian Hoyer, you had Ryan Mallett, you had the whole drama of them getting pulled and switched out and who was going to be the quarterback. And But this time it was Brian Hoyer. This is his show. This is who O'Brien was going to go with. And they just simply laid an egg. I mean, the defense played as hard as they could. And the defense tried to keep them in the game as long as they could. I mean, it was 13-0 at halftime. And, I mean, 
the defense had only given up six points because the first seven came on the kickoff return for a touchdown. So I think it was just shock and, I mean, disappointment in the play of Brian Hoyer. And, you know, you felt like this was his shot to say, hey, I'm the starting quarterback of this team and I'm the guy that this franchise needs to put all the weight on and I'll carry you into the future. And he didn't perform the way anybody thought he could have or and it was his worst game of his career and he owned up to it after the game and I think it just leaves a lot of questions for the Houston Texans now going forward and to all the off season and into the what the health of Tom Savage is, you know, the the rookie quarterback that they are still having to recover that had uh, the injury in the preseason and then going into the draft and uh free agency. So I mean uh, there's a lot of questions now for the Houston Texans team on where they're going to go from here now. And I think there's more questions now because of that 30 to nothing blowout. One thing about Brian Hoare, you're just looking at his stats from yesterday. He was 15 to 34 for 136 yards. He had four interceptions and a fumble. His QBR was 1.7 out of 100, 1.7. Passer rating at 15.9. So you alluded to this as being the worst game of his career. But one of my questions for you is we had a we had Adam Coleman on a few weeks ago, and uh, he had mentioned that maybe the Texans making the playoffs was not the best thing for the franchise because it's going to put them back in the mid-20s in terms of draft picks. Now, in order to get a franchise quarterback, a lot of people think you need to be in the top 10. What does a loss like this or, you know, the Texans, you know, getting into the playoffs at a 9-7 record and then having Brian Hoyer perform so poorly, what does it do for the quarterback situation next year? Well, I mean, you know, Hoyer was asked after the game if he felt like he was the starter of this team and he was the guy that they're going to go to. And he said, you know, we've got whatever, eight, nine months until – the new season starts again, and he's going to prepare every day like he is the starter um, of this team. And I think there's also the question of what can Tom Savage do? You know, that's the biggest question. Um, we hadn't really been able to see what he's been able to do. In the preseason, he got hurt. Last season, he really didn't play much um, because of Fitzpatrick and that crew that ran through at quarterback. And, I mean, I think – They'll have to go into the offseason now and look at the quarterback situation and go, okay, who is our guy? Like, who's the guy we're going to go with? And is it Brian Hoyer? Is it Tom Savage? Is it a free agent quarterback? Or are we going to go draft somebody? And like you mentioned, a lot of people believe you can get a, the only way you're going to get a franchise quarterback is in the top ten. Uh, most of the time, yeah, but Russell Wilson was drafted pretty late in the draft as well. I think he was a third-round pick, and he's worked out pretty well now. Some people might say he's not a top-tier quarterback, but, hey, he, he's taken them to the Super Bowl, won the Super Bowl, so I put him up there with the top-tier quarterbacks in the NFL. But, you know, it's going to be very interesting the next few months to look at what they're going to do uh, with this quarterback situation. I think it's just it needs stability. They need to either stick with Brian Hoyer and say, okay, Hoyer, you're our guy, you're the one we're going to go for, or they need to say, okay, Tom Savage, this is your team now. You're going to – we're going to make you the starter in the offseason. You're going to go through camp, and we're going to see what you have. I mean, they have to figure something out. They can't keep doing this quarterback carousel where they have was five, six, seven quarterbacks over the last two years suit up for the Texans. I mean, you, you can't do that. You can't do that if you want to, one, make the playoffs, and two, uh, be successful in the playoffs. And I think the latter part is the most important part is being successful in the playoffs. Josh, uh, that kind of brings me to um, the, the coaching job that was done yesterday. As you know, this is Bill O'Brien's first playoff game as head coach of the Texans. Uh, how would you grade his performance? I mean, I, I think from my part, I saw what Hoyer was doing, the turnovers, the fumble, the interceptions, and I'm thinking, like, why doesn't he put in Whedon? Why doesn't he just run the ball? Why doesn't he do something other than have Brian Hoyer throw the ball? Well, you know, if you notice the way Bill O'Brien was calling the game yesterday, they were doing a lot of run first. They really didn't start, you know, passing first until later when the game had kind of gotten a little more out of hand. But, you know, they were running well with Alfred Blue at times. You know, Alfred had that 49-yard run that he busted off all the way down into the red zone. And then, of course, Hoyer threw the interception at the goal line um, that turned the ball over there. But I, I just think, you know, I think O'Brien wanted to stick with Hoyer because he's like, you know, he's our guy. And what O'Brien said after the game was that they had given Hoyer so many of the reps that we didn't really didn't take too many of the reps during the week, which I can respect him for not going to Whedon in that situation because you don't want to throw a quarterback out there that hasn't had the quality reps in a week to get ready for a game. 
I mean, would it have changed things at halftime? Maybe. I mean, but that's, you know, that's for uh, us to discuss and figure out. And uh, But, uh, you know, in O'Brien's mind, he's going to stick with Hoyer. And I think overall grade on the coaching of the game, I mean, probably like a B, B minus. I mean, it wasn't horrendous. I think the plays were there. I just think Hoyer didn't make the throws. I think the plays were there. You know, he just made short throws to Hopkins. He didn't really utilize the third best wide receiver in the National Football League, you know, behind only Julio Jones and Antonio Brown. And, you know, Hopkins finishes with six catches for 69 yards. So, I mean, you have to look at a couple things, and Hopkins said they'll work on the chemistry and stuff in the offseason. But, I mean, I, I think it kind of it goes on to the coaches, but at the same time, the players have to make the plays. The coach can only call. O'Brien can only call the plays on the sidelines. It's up to the players to execute, and Brian Hoyer didn't execute at all on Saturday afternoon. Well, if you talk about someone on the Texans roster being the guy, nobody is more that than J.J. Watt. You know, he played for 96% of the snaps throughout the entire season. Uh, you know, perhaps the most important player on the roster, maybe inarguably the most important player on the roster, sustaining a third-quarter injury, and he's going to undergo uh, groin surgery this coming Tuesday. What uh, What did you hear about the injury after the game, and, and what's the prognosis for this guy going forward, given how key he is to the Texans' hopes? Uh, apparently, I mean, what I've heard is that the injury has happened a couple weeks ago, and he's been kind of playing through it, um, and then it got re-aggravated on Saturday, and now he's going to go have surgery um, to get it repaired and get it fixed, and I mean, I think he'll be fine. I mean, J.J. Watts, you know, we've all seen him on Hard Knocks, and we've all seen him, you know, all over the TVs. You know, he's one of the harder-working guys in the NFL, and he's going to come back stronger, he's going to come back faster, and he's going to be better for next season. Um, you know, he played through the broken hand. He, he played through having a cast on his hand. He came back from that. You know, he – if there's a guy on the Texans team that – it probably hurt the most being on the sidelines at the end. It was probably J.J. Watt because he went down there for the final few drives that um, Kansas City put together. And you can tell he was standing there, had his helmet on, he was ready to go. He, he hadn't, you know, mailed it in. He, didn't, he wasn't standing there with his hat on, you know, just saying, okay, we're going to get off the season. He wanted to go out and play, but he just couldn't. Um, so you have to commend him for that. And, um, you know, he, he is the heartbeat of the Texas team and the, and the defense and – you know, him along with uh, Dwayne Brown is another guy that they didn't have on Saturday, um, which was a big loss a week before the playoffs, losing Dwayne Brown, uh, because he's a big leader in that locker room. Uh, so you get most of those guys back healthy next year. I think um, it'll make a difference leadership-wise. But, you know, I mean, J.J. Watt's the defensive player of the year. Again, he'll win it for the third time in his career. He'll join a very exclusive club when he does that. Uh, and he'll win it back-to-back, and he deserves – it more than anybody in the NFL because for what he did and going through the broken hand and the cast and the groin injury and all that, he still was the most um, disruptive player in the National Football League this year. Definitely a guy to uh, look forward to seeing next year as he bounces back. I mean, uh, if, if all the guys on the Texans played with the same heart as J.J. Watt, I mean, they would finish 16-0 uh, and 0 in the regular season and undoubtedly win the uh, the championship. But unfortunately, that's not the case. We don't have a team of, uh, you know, 53 players that are J.J. Watt. But Josh Cook, uh, we definitely appreciate you joining us, you know, kind of giving us your uh, analysis from... Uh, the Texans game yesterday, of course, uh, Texans fall to the Chiefs 30 nothing in the opening round of the playoffs here. And uh, again, you work for the uh, the Houston Community News. You work for Houston Community Newspapers as a sports editor. Tell us how our listeners can find you on social media and kind of get that analysis about the Texans and the other sports that you follow. Uh, you can follow me at J O K O C H zero nine, or you can just type in my name Joshua and K O C H and find me on Twitter and. Give me a give me a call. I kind of cover everything across Houston, the Texans, and the Astros are coming up here uh, here in a few months, and um, just high school sports and all that fun. So uh, it's been it's been fun. Now uh, time to switch gears to baseball, basketball, and baseball season. Perfect. We definitely are looking forward to baseball season here coming up. Astros and Astros pitchers and catchers report in less than forty days. Uh, but Josh, we definitely appreciate you taking the time out and joining us today. All right, thanks, guys. Have a good one. You're listening to the Weekly Brew.
so for those of you that follow crime and uh, you know America's most wanted list or the world's most wanted list, you might be familiar with the name Joaquin Guzman, better known as El Chapo. And El Chapo was actually recaptured for the third time this past week. And uh, right now, Mexican authorities in the U.S. are kind of debating on whether or not he should be extradited to the United States for prosecution. But one of the more interesting things that happened this past weekend was it turns out that Sean Penn, of all people, worked with a woman named Kate Del Castillo, who is a Hispanic soap opera star. Uh, and they actually went down to Mexico and interviewed El Chapo back in October for an article that appeared and was released on Rolling Stone's website late on Saturday night. And it turns out that this article, according to Mexican authorities, actually was responsible for identifying El Chapo's location. So first off, I just want to know from you guys, why was Sean Penn the person to go meet El Chapo? I mean, to, to me, that just blows my mind. I just think it's hilarious, given Penn's history of not exactly being the biggest fan of America, um, leading authorities to a guy that is wanted by U.S. authorities. Um, I, I, this was all serendipitous. I mean, he didn't plan this. It was sort of unwitting. And I, I'm looking at some news sources here, and it looks like he actually might be under some investigation for not cooperating with authorities um, in the investigation. But uh, it is sort of ironic, and I, I wonder how uh, this will... It, this will lead to any jokes the Academy Awards coming up here. As we mentioned earlier, the article that appeared in Rolling Stone magazine on Saturday night, uh, it was an 11,000 word article headlined El Chapo Speaks. And Kevin, I know we were chatting back and forth on Saturday night about the article. And one of the things that you had mentioned immediately was how poorly it was written. I mean, just just share some of the quotes from the journalistic mind of Sean Penn. I mean, so there's a lot here to this. Like, you know, he goes, uh, you know, there's some questions of, of whether he's, you know, legally culpable in what he's done, led the investigation to this guy, bungled it. Uh, there's a lot to be upset about, I guess. But the most upsetting thing without question is his inability to write in the English language. This is a guy who would, I think, consider himself maybe, um, you know, a member of the intelligentsia, you know, like a, a smart liberal elite. Um, and it's just embarrassing how poorly he writes here. So, I mean, there's lines where he's talking about, like, um, his, his contact, Espinoza. His bald head demands your attention to his twinkling eyes. Well, you can't demand attention to something. You just demand attention. That's, that's poor writing. Uh, he says, we sit within quietude of fortified walls that are old New York hotel construction when walls were walls and telephones were usable without a Ph.D., and I, I, there's a lot going on there in that quote because the fact that he is unable to use the telephones properly to communicate with El Chapo and his groups may have a lot to do with why El Chapo was actually apprehended again. So that's that's it's a really deep uh, quote there and reveals a lot about what's going on. But also just doesn't work grammatically. This is, I, I think, embarrassing for Rolling Stone, which I recall being sort of a bastion of really high-level writing, sort of out of the box, where um, you know writers should go to sort of experiment and explore their craft. And this is just embarrassing. So I'm guessing their hands were tied. He wanted Penn involved for whatever movie-making reasons, obviously trying to make his own film about his own life. He's, he's uh, trying to helm his own biopic, which may have gotten him caught. But um, yeah, Sean Penn, he's done a lot of horrible things. Uh, the worst thing he's ever done may be this piece that I'm reading right here. That's a pretty strong statement. And for those of you that are not 100% familiar with El Chapo, he's definitely a name that's going to be uh, in the forefront of the media here in the next coming weeks, especially as Mexico and the U.S. are trying to figure out what the extradition policy is. But uh, just a little more background on the guy. He is uh, part of the Mexican drug lord who heads the Sonola cartel. I mean, he's it's a, it's a criminal organization in Mexico, uh, you know, kind of describing the area in which he grew up. And he's become arguably the most powerful person in Mexico. I believe Forbes from 2009 to 2011 ranked him one of the most powerful powerful people in the world. His net worth is estimated at over a billion dollars. I mean, Zach, how important was was it that he was captured for the third time? I mean, is it the third time actually the charm? Yeah, I'm sure hoping. I think it's, you know, it's great that he was captured. I think the fact, like you mentioned, that it was for the third time doesn't give me a lot of confidence that there's not going to be a need for a fourth um, particularly how Sean Penn talked about how in the art, uh, article, how he viewed uh, actually uh, El Chapo as being Mexico's president and stuff. And, you know, the, the, communication that took place between that actress and, and him and how he should really be the leader and just, uh, you know, uh, his his uh, merchandise should be love and, you know, traffic love and stuff. Um, it's it's definitely a great... I, he did mention in there that while he was incarcerated that his business did not decrease uh, as well as it didn't increase. I, I, I am a little bit curious just knowing how large that cartel is, how much of an impact it's going to have on that overall organizational structure, but uh, I guess time will tell. 
ultimately, politically, philosophically, these cartels don't exist without the war on drugs and the prohibition of drugs in this country, which you'd think that in today's era, we would be beyond um, what I think to be sort of like a regressive Stone Age kind of political policy of imprisoning people for possessing, you know, so-called controlled substances. The constitutional background is actually quite shaky for it. Um, interstate commerce is the uh, the justification for it. But, but this is a, a creation of our own doing. We're responsible for these cartels and drug lords because they're willing to step into spaces we create with our laws and attempt to, you know, take advantage of them to make a buck. And he's made a billion bucks, I guess. So I don't, I don't know. Sure, they're bad guys. They do bad things. But all of this is, um, it comes from us, I think, in our policies. It's sort of a contentious point to argue that the war on drugs is, um, that, well, that the war on drugs is, is fueling cartels. I think that these cartels would exist with or without it. Um, I think uh, as someone who has worked with um, in uh, rehabs and addiction clinics, I, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of drug laws simply because of the sort of damage I, I've seen drugs do, um, regardless of what form they come in. I, I, I think the solution to this is uh, multifaceted and it's a, it's a complex situation, but I don't think even when you legalize something like marijuana or cocaine or methamphetamine that that would stop these organizations from doing what they're doing. Um, this whole idea about taxing drugs, about regulating them. Um, I, I think that this is sort of a pipe dream. Um, if we're thinking about how to curb drug use, um, you know, I, when I think about like things that have been done in the current administration to curb the drug problem, I mean, you know, things like Fast and Furious come to mind, which don't exactly um, indicate um, that it's done anything to, to help. So I don't know. I, I, I just have a real problem with that stance. Why do you hope to curb what you call the drug problem? If people want to do something, I don't see the harm in letting them do it. The harm is the collateral damage that comes from making these things illegal, for imprisoning people for possession of substances, for you know harming people's abilities to make a living and a life with criminal records that are unwarranted, unjustified. I mean, uh, prohibition goes... We totally agree that some, uh, some penalties for drug use are absolutely ridiculous. I think... Um, for a lot of use crime. I mean, I, I think that this is one area where uh, drug courts are really helpful. You know, we're not just throwing people into the pen for, um, you know, nonviolent drug offenses. Um, and in some, in some cases we are, but, uh, you know, I, I definitely think we need reform in how we prosecute uh, users who are really just addicts in need of a lot of help. Lincoln said that prohibition goes beyond the bounds of reason and that it attempts to legislate men's appetites. And that's exactly what we're doing. Is we're, it's an unfair overreach of federal authority to attempt to say to people like, you like that, but you shouldn't have it. You're not allowed to harm yourself. It's like physician-assisted suicide, another issue where we're just really behind the times, I think. And there are other countries that are more progressive than us. And I wonder when, as a populace, we're going to catch up to where we ought to be philosophically. I mean, to say to someone, uh, you know, you cannot, you cannot smoke that joint. Uh, you can't have that joint in your possession that is illegal um, or even morally wrong, I think is wrong-headed and backwards. Depends on your definition of progress. Some people would call that regression. Some people would call it progress. I, I don't, um, I, I think if you're looking at the stance from a, from a public health perspective, um, the proliferation of hard substances like heroin, like methamphetamine, like ecstasy, all of which are documented to do serious damage, particularly in people who are uh, unwitting to their effects on their body. I just, I cannot justify that sort of policy. And I mean, to, to drug proponents, I mean, what does your solution look like? I mean, if you're looking to legalize drugs and so quote unquote, de you decrease the power of cartels, well, what is your solution? Just uh, sort of this like open free uh, usage policy where anyone can buy and sell? Absolutely. And I think it's regulated, of course, the same way we do with like alcohol. You have to have a liquor license. I mean, there can be steps put into place and obviously you can't drink liquor and then go operate a vehicle. You know, there are rules um, that sort of govern the way we interact with one another and whether we infringe on others' rights. But I think that anyone has the right to do whatever they want to themselves. And as a country, we're only harming ourselves and our citizens by punishing people for imbibing substances that they happen to enjoy. I think this is a little bit of uh, an issue that we could probably dive into another time. But I think right now, uh, you know, with El Chapo, it's kind of interesting if you look at that Rolling Stone article, uh, you know, just finding out how he got involved in the the drug business. I mean, he said that, you know, essentially it was supply and demand. There's a product. 
um, that he had access to. He said it started with marijuana, it started with poppy, and now it has grown from everything to cocaine and, uh, you know, meth. And the biggest consumer of this is the United States. And, you know, there were so many cartels vying for power uh, that, you know, are, are creating, you know, you have decapitations, you have kidnappings, all of this stuff happening in Mexico. And I think, you know, probably a little bit, I don't know, it, it, to me, it just seems like it's a militarized industry of sorts. And um, the thing is, even capturing El Chapo, it's not going to do anything to resolve these cartels. I mean, uh, it, it's not like cutting off the head of a snake. I mean, he essentially said himself in the interview with Rolling Stone that, you know, long after I'm gone, these organizations are still going to exist as long as there is a demand for the product. So, I don't know. It's, it's just kind of interesting to me to see if this is actually going to so, solve Austin, any sort actually, of problem. Is that actually or, El Chapo saying that he disagrees you know, with if, Kevin on that uh, if we just make drugs legal? That it's actually based off demand, not legality? El Chapo has never met Kevin unless... El Chapo, to my knowledge, has never met Kevin. Um, Kevin, did, did you ever have any interactions with El Chapo? Yeah, no, I've never met the guy, but I think that we'd be big fans of one another. But I think that about everyone, so it could just be that I'm uh, big-headed. As long as he gives you five-star reviews, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, if he listens to the podcast, I'm a huge fan. I've met, I've gone on record. No matter what crime you commit, I'm a huge fan of yours if you're a fan of ours. That's, that's a fact. Before we move on, I just want to say one thing. Uh, in the Rolling Stone article... Uh, in the Rolling Stone article, one of the questions that was posed to El Chapo is, is it true what they say that drugs destroy humanity and bring harm? His response was, well, it's a reality that drugs destroy. Unfortunately, as I said, where I grew up, there was no other way and there still isn't a way to survive. No way to work in our economy to be able to make a living. So maybe this is a stronger point to Mexico in terms of providing opportunities for its people trying to work on their own economy uh, and, and job growth. And that's something that we've seen, um, you know, kind of with the oil industry in uh, Mexico specifically. Uh, you know, they're starting to deregulate, taking away the government allowing uh, foreign investors to come in. So I think this is a larger problem for Mexico in terms of their economic stability. But one of the other crime issues, if you will, that has kind of captivated the United States here in the past few weeks is this documentary on Netflix called Making of a Murderer. It focuses on a guy named Steve Avery, who is from Wisconsin and uh, was actually wrongly convicted for a rape back in the 1980s. He spent 18 years in prison, was released in 2003, but in 2005, he was arrested uh, for the murder of a woman who worked for Auto Trader magazine and I don't know. Have you, have you guys seen this Netflix documentary? I mean, it's it's absolutely fascinating, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's fascinating throughout. I think it probably could have used some editing. I felt like it did drag on a little bit. And maybe the justification is that if you spend 10 years making a documentary, then by God, you're going to get 10 full episodes from it. But um, but yeah, absolutely fascinating content. Um, presented pretty well, although again, it does drag a bit. Um, and I I mean, I'm, in, I'm infuriated personally, particularly with the treatment of the 16-year-old. Um, obviously, people have described him as disabled. I'm not sure if that's actually the term, but he certainly... Um, uh, handicapped or, or um, developmentally challenged and was bullied into giving a confession to a brutal murder fed details. I mean, that that no 16-year-old should even have to contemplate, much less be fed by the police and then have to claim he you know was party to. So um, that was the, the most repugnant thing for me. But I think that a lot of discussion I've heard is, is the guy guilty? Is the guy not guilty? And that's a fair question to ask, of course. Um, and certainly, you know, we should be able to decide that so we can determine whether he should be in prison or not. But to me, the issue was more the absolute corruption, uh, immorality, and, and overreach by the police and just being dogged in their determination to get this guy no matter what. And I think that should have really been the theme of the documentary. It was for me, is that the police, um, whether or not Steve Avery killed this woman, the police were the villains, and they were they were pretty bad villains, in fact. And I think that um, that's the sort of thing that happens all the time, everywhere, um, and it's not talked about enough. So I love the attention that that drew to the prosecution, to the police, um, and I, I wish that every case that was prosecuted ever had that kind of attention uh, pointed towards it so that people were held accountable. So the two directors for this were Laura Ricciardi and Mariah Demos. I believe Laura actually has a background in law, uh, so that's kind of what drew her attention to this. But it's kind of interesting that, uh, you know, on the success of Jinx, which talked about Robert Durst and, uh, you know, kind of 
his issues that he's had and, you know, the, the murders, I guess, that he's gotten away with. And then the podcast serial, which is now into its second season, uh, you know, the filmmakers tried to pitch this to several different networks. And uh, Netflix was ultimately one that bought into this. And of course, as Kevin mentioned, uh, there were 10 episodes in this season. And Netflix, as they do with everything else, releases all of the season at once. Now, I'm not sure if this is the best move. I think, you know, maybe they could have done, uh, you know, one episode a week for 10 weeks or two episodes a week for five weeks so they could continue that conversation uh, going. But uh, this series was it debuted in December and people are still talking about it a month later. Uh, you know, Jeremy, I'm curious, you've, you've read a lot on this documentary. What are some of your takeaways from this? Uh, I think this is a, a prime example of what's called advocacy journalism. Um, I, I think that the directors have an agenda. They definitely want to see this guy get off. Um, they sort of want to make a name for themselves. Um, and in the process, of, I mean, they've been really successful. I mean, there's a, there are a couple of uh, petitions, change.org and whitehouse.gov, with more than 300,000 signatures. So clearly they've whipped up uh, part of the public into supporting their cause. But there are a lot of things that they leave out of this case or sort of put a spin on that doesn't quite give a whole picture of, of Avery. And um, I did just one, I mean, speaking from my own experience and working with people who uh, did this sort of thing, uh, there was a, an incident early on in his life where um, he, he threw his, the family cat, that he doused the family cat with gasoline and threw it into a fire. Um, clearly an example of antisocial behavior, and that sort of thing can always predict violence um, in later life. Uh, the guy is, is no saint. I mean, he, he, uh, he might be the, the victim of some unwitting police corruption, but I, I don't know if that makes him innocent. Um, and it, it seems like a lot of people, when they look at this, they're sort of whipped up in anger about the initial miscarriage of justice and the false conviction of, of the rape that happened in the 80s. Um, but that that certainly doesn't make him incapable of what he's accused of doing. There's still a miscarriage of justice. Whether or not he's guilty, the police did things that are abominable and unconscionable in his prosecution and in gathering evidence against him. So I think there have been two legitimate miscarriages of justice, whether or not he's guilty. I mean, I think if you're saying like, well, he was guilty anyway, so it's good that he wound up in prison, then you're really on the side of the corrupt police in this case who were said that, you know, we're sure he did it. We'll go to any lengths to make sure that he's convicted. And that's, I think, the the you know wellspring of most of the evil that surrounds his case in my eyes. It's, it's For me, it's not Avery. You know, I would have liked to see him get a fair trial and have the jury fairly decide what he did or didn't do. Um, but in this case, the police vastly overreached and for a long time got away with it. So, I mean, for me, the encouraging thing is they're being held accountable now in the court of public opinion, if nothing else. One of the things to note is that all of Stephen Avery's appeals have now been exhausted. Uh, his nephew, Brendan Dassey, is trying to um, get a second trial through a federal court. Uh, and currently, as the documentary ends, uh, there is still no update on that potential trial. But uh, Zach, one of my questions for you is, you know, the past few years, people have just been captivated by these types of series, such as Jinx and Serial and uh, Now Making of a Murderer. What is it about these documentaries that engage and captivate the people? I think it's a, a sense of like it actually being sort of a real life. I mean, we see both TV and, and movies and stuff just so much about like um, so many stories just uh, uh, involving around these things. But, uh, you know, um, the, the idea of like police corruption and um, did he really do it? Did he not? Was there reasonable doubt? So on and so forth. And I think it's just sort of that intrigue of um, something that you hadn't seen uh, seen before. Uh, just sort of like at least in serial in the case of Adnan and, and all that, like unless you lived in Baltimore and probably actually paid attention to the news, you probably wouldn't have known that was going on. Um, and just sort of like a, a sense of intrigue of like everyone kind of like thinks this is what's going on. Uh, and, and this is a case of like actually like a real life getting it's, it's a little bit more tangible than just like a movie or a TV show where everyone knows it's fictitious. Um, in some ways, I kind of think uh, the popularity that's driving it, though, uh, though House of Cards is also fictitious. It's sort of that sense of like this is, you know, everyone thinks that this stuff actually goes on. Um, and it's sort of like that that type of like drawing the audience in into that. I think the filmmakers are also sort of uh, parroting off of this trendy sentiment in parts of the public today that's sort of trendy to hate authority and the police in general. Um, with uh, you know several cases here over the past couple of years um, involving incidents of alleged police brutality, um, certainly the public is already sort of in a in a position to distrust the police, and so um, 
it's not a surprise that uh, the documentary has sort of gone the direction that it's gone in. Um, it's just something to keep in mind when looking at, um, at looking at their conclusions. So if you haven't seen the documentary Making a Murder, go check it out on Netflix. Uh, currently on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, 96% of people have said they enjoyed it. Uh, the tomato meter is at 97%, so it's, uh, it's, it's been critically acclaimed. A lot of people are talking about it on social media. Uh, we want you to go to our social media pages. Actually, tell us what you think. Is Stephen Avery guilty? Is he not guilty? Are the Manitowoc County uh, Police Department, Sheriff's Department, are they guilty? Just let us know. We definitely encourage conversation and uh, I, I definitely think it was fascinating I'm kind of interested to see what Netflix does next in terms of covering uh, you know whether it's true crime or you know any series really in general I think some of the content that they put out here in the last few years has been quality and I look forward to seeing what the platform can develop next especially as many people Kevin included are cutting the cable cord oh you gotta call me out like that huh Kevin you're cutting the cable cord it's been cut for quite some time wait like no tv at all uh, well, I get lots of television. Wow. How's that working out for you? It's great. I, I love it. Um, I have to go to like public venues to watch some sporting events. But apart from that, um, and that gets me out in, in amongst the people. You know, I'm a man of the people. So it's been a great decision. I encourage all of you to do the same. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. The song that you heard at the top of the podcast today was Other Side by the band Race to the Moon, a local product here from Houston, Texas. Now joining us on the podcast to discuss the band Race to the Moon is James Halsher. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. You guys? Could not be better. Not too bad. Not too bad. We're definitely happy to have you on. And for those that aren't familiar with uh, Race of the Moon, James is the lead vocalist and uh, the rhythm guitar for the band. And uh, you've got a few upcoming shows, but we'll talk about that a bit later. But what I want to know from you is where did the name Race of the Moon come from? Is it is it an, like paying tribute to Space City? Uh, not, 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 not purposefully. Um. I was actually, uh, when we first started, I was looking, that's one of the first things you try to do, name the band. So I uh, I was listening to a podcast, of all things, and they were talking about how impossible it is to name new bands. Uh, just, you know, it's difficult creative-wise, and if you're going to run into somebody else who has the same name and all that. So uh, their their solution, they said, was to look at other industries that do the same thing, and they found racehorses. Um, there are new racehorses bred and put into competition every day, and they have to register with, with a unique name, which is why you end up with uh, crud. Who won the Triple Crown last year? American Pharaoh, spelled incorrectly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You end up with stuff like that. Um, so there's a registry online of all previously used racehorse names that are not currently being used. And it's 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 an endless list of just amazing band names. Um <laughs> So I went on there and I just clicked around and I found Race to the Moon and I told the guys and they were like, sure, sweet, that's awesome. So we went with it. It wasn't until like a year later where I suddenly had the realization, I was like, oh, we're a band in Houston named Race to the Moon. (laughs) Uh, What are the chances? Yeah. (laughs) So it pretty much works. And I guess you guys started in June 2012 and uh, you kind of define your sound as, you know, punk, indie rock and uh, that nature. But I guess tell us a little bit about uh, your album, What a Time to Be Alive, and, you know, kind of the sound that went into making that album. That was just uh, the last, you know, couple years of us being a band and writing everything and uh, wanting to get into the studio and do a recording, but uh, never really taking the initiative. And then our uh, original bassist, Jackson, all of a sudden is gonna move to san francisco and he's he's living in san francisco right now and so like i think it was barely a couple weeks maybe a month before he was actually set to move out um we went into the studio we bought some time we just recorded everything we had um that us four had had at that at that point and just put it all down in like a single day and uh yeah it it was it was a rush it was really fast um (laughs) was a lot of work to get it all done um, but yeah, that, 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 it was just us, uh, just writing whatever comes naturally to us. There was no real, uh, goal with it other than just to write songs that we liked and we wanted to hear and we wanted to play, you know? So I was actually bought the uh, album myself and I've been jamming to it all morning. I, I'm very impressed and, uh, certainly a pleasure to have you yeah, with us here. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, um, uh, so I'm, as I'm listening to it, I'm hearing what I perceive as, you know, some undertones of like kind of jam band vibes, like maybe some fish or like string cheese incident or two that kind of came to my mind. I mean, would you, are those influences of yours or are there influences that you can sort of pick out a name that you guys had before going into the studio and producing this album? 
Um, collectively, there's not a whole, whole lot we can agree on, but, uh, there's a few acts like, uh, we all love Wilco. Uh, we like to point out Dinosaur Jr., who's another guitar-based indie rock band as, like, a big major influence on us, or something kind of a touchstone that people can listen to to hear. And then stuff like, uh, My Morning Jacket, which kind of fits into what you're describing. They're a little bit more jammy, but they're definitely more, um, song structure-oriented and I can get where you're coming from with that, because we lean real heavily on uh, Victor, who's our lead guitarist, and he's he's just amazing at improvisation, so we just let him roll. We go, here's a part in the song, and just have fun and go nuts, and uh, I think a lot of that comes through just from uh, what he's been listening to all his life. Just great guitar players, so... You had said that you had recorded uh, at a studio here in Houston. That studio is actually Sugar Hill uh, Recording Studios, which, you know, kind of has had some famous people uh, record there in the past. I think one of the ones that comes to my mind is Destiny's Child and uh, Beyonce. I mean, what was it like just recording uh, the album in that studio? Uh, that was really cool. Yeah, I, I laugh when you said that because uh, when you walk in the door, they have a big room where they place all their famous records and like right in the square center of the wall is Destiny's Child. And <laughs> you're like, oh, right, they were here. That's crazy. Um, but no, Sugar Hill is really cool. It, it was a great place. We worked with a, an engineer there named Cody Franz. He's a really neat guy, and he he helped us out a lot with uh, getting the sound for the record and setting everything up. Um, and he was it, it, it was just it was really relaxed, and it worked really well with us. I'm positive he uh, you know adapts his workflow to the band that comes in, so he fit us like a glove. And uh, it was interesting because I've done a lot of self recording for years and years and years. And that's just uh, a hassle and so difficult to do. And you walk in there and you know, you're paying good money. So yeah, it, it better turn up. And it's, it's amazing. You know, they put all your amps in isolated rooms and we all played live together, um, in the same space, but all of our sound was isolated from each other. So it could be mixed later properly. It was, it was wild. It was, it was a really, it was a real treat. So Sugar Hill, I mean, kind of a Houston landmark, and you're very steeped in the Houston scene, which is one of the things we love and one of the reasons we had you on here, because we're sort of learning as we do these interviews that Houston has a very distinctive uh, music culture that isn't always talked about. So I'm curious, from your experience, you know, having played on Houston, being part of the city, what does Houston offer that maybe like in Austin doesn't, or, or, or does Houston deserve more credit for having uh, the music scene that it does? I I, I think... Where wherever you end up, there's gonna be a, a pretty decent scene. Um, Houston's pretty unique in its own way. Just the way I've been experiencing it, um, there's so 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 much different kinds of music being explored and done. Uh, there's a giant rap scene. Uh, there's a huge. Uh, indie rock and alt country kind of scene that's happening right now uh there's a really thriving emo scene that happens underneath all of that and we've uh taken part in a couple of shows there there's some diy music venues uh that popped up kind of off and on on the middle (laughs) middle of town or east side of town and uh it's it's what you make of it any night of the week there's something you can go out and find and uh, experience and you'll be glad that you did uh, you should check out god there's a website what's it called space city rock i think is his name spacecityrock.com i go there every day um they have a calendar page uh, on the back of it and he lists everything everything that's happening in town and any night of the week there's stuff going on so if you just go and look there and and and, and go experience some bands you'll find maybe something you like and that'll help lead you to somebody else and that'll help lead you to somebody else and it, it just grows and grows from there and I'm positive it's like that anywhere you go in the world. Um, Austin gets a, a good rep because they have South by Southwest and things like that. But, I mean, the local music scene is thriving just everywhere. The barrier for entry into music is so low right now. It, it, anybody and everybody can do it. And I think wherever you end up, you're going to find something good. One of the things that Houston is also known for is kind of the arts district and the arts scene. I mean, when you drive on I-45 heading into downtown, you see that Be Someone sign. Uh, you've got that I Love Houston sign on I-10. Uh, you know, there's definitely some solid artwork. And speaking of solid artwork, uh, just looking at your album cover for What a Time to Be Alive. I mean, we'll post this on our Facebook page, but it's just phenomenal artwork. I, I definitely, uh, you know, like the cartoonish, the animation. What went into creating that design? Uh, a lot. I could go into the, the weeks of 
uh, arguing and yelling that we had trying to figure out what we wanted to do with our album cover. And uh, luckily, we eventually just decided to let uh, that guy, It's na- his name is Ruel, Ruel Yarborough, I believe is how you pronounce it. I'm not positive. He's going to hate me for this. Um, but Ruel is amazing. The guy is just awesome. We had ideas that we tried to throw at him and he showed us a little bit of what he could do with what our concept of what the album cover should be was and it was it was not working we were it wasn't his fault it was just us we were fighting amongst ourselves and so eventually we just said hey listen to the songs draw whatever and we'll pick and work with it from there and he drew that (laughs) and we were just like why did we do this from the start this is amazing (laughs) so yeah we need to remove ourselves from that graphic design aspect of it because we're terrible at it and there's people who are amazing at it like him and he was right there the whole time so uh so yeah we 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 just said draw whatever you feel and that's what he came back with and it was it's it is it's so awesome we're we're really happy with the album cover too so you guys have uh two shows coming up in the very near future and uh obviously want to get as many people as possible out there to them so uh, for the people that are listening how can they uh go to these shows where these shows at and and what's uh what's the night going to be like if they do come uh this coming wednesday what is january Oh, God, I need to open a calendar. (laughs) (laughs) January 13th. January 13th. Yeah. Uh, January 13th, we're going to be playing at a place called the Satellite Bar, which is over in uh, east east of town. It's a a pretty neat bar. I I just went there uh, last week, actually. It's kind of new-ish. It just opened up uh, or or just started booking more shows very recently. Uh, It's pretty cool. I like their stage setup. They have uh, a lot of beers on... uh, in cans and bottles and stuff um parking there's a little rough but you'll you'll, you you can figure it out trust me um i I was able to uh we're gonna be playing with a band from austin named dreamboat and they're really good i was really impressed uh just listening to them because sometimes you get thrown on bills with bands just kind of flying through town and you're like wow i don't know if you guys should really be going for it as hard as you are but these guys are amazing i'm i'm super super excited to see them it's called a dreamboat they're from austin and so that's going to be Wednesday night over at the Satellite Bar. And then on the 30th of January, we're going to be playing with some friends of ours from uh, Bryan College Station. Their name is Carusco, and they're kind of a, an emo band. And so we paired them up with uh, our good friends uh, Valens, who are another part of the, the emo scene here. And so it's us and Valens and them and uh, another friend of Carusco's from San Marcos. I think their name is Sidechick. So yeah. And that's going to be at Natsuo in downtown. So plenty of opportunities to see you guys come and play soon. But uh, for those, you know, we think that, you know, social media is very, very important in terms of uh, promoting content, sharing, connecting with fans. How can the people listening to this podcast right now find Race to the Moon on social media? Uh, We're on Facebook. We're also on Instagram. I believe we're at Race to the Moon Band on Instagram. And we've been uh, getting more active on there. That's a lot of fun. I don't know. Do you guys do Instagram much? I love it. I'm addicted. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a great time because like, we're out at shows all the time. So it's just fun. You can just pick up your phone and point it up there and be like, uh, this is a band we really like. And you guys should go check them out too. So it, it, that, 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 that's a great way to look into us. And then um, uh, most of our stuff is all aggregated on our Bandcamp, racetothemoon.bandcamp.com. Um, and there'll, that'll have links to all of our stuff on there and you can listen to our music there as well. James, I guess if you're giving advice to local uh, fans of music, what would you tell them to do? Just get out and, 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 and see more bands, just get involved. That's the one thing that someplace like you were talking about earlier, like in Austin or whatever has over Houston, at least in someone's mind is they think I go to Austin because of South by Southwest or Austin city limits or things like that. And there's going to be a big crowd there. And that's not technically true. I don't think there's anyone, any more people in Austin consuming art and music and culture than there are in Houston. We just need to get out and go experience it sometime. Again, we've got James Helsher on from Race of the Moon and uh, definitely fun conversation. Great music scene here in Houston. Again, you can check them out. We've got two upcoming shows, January 13th at Satellite Bar here in Houston. Also January 30th at Natsua, which is actually Houston backwards. Uh, so make sure to go check out Race of the Moon. And uh, James, we definitely appreciate your time today. Hey, anytime. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. That's James Helsher from the band Race of the Moon. Closing time. Episode 25 of the podcast was quite packed. Again, we had the interview with Race to the Moon. 
We talked about the Texans debacle and, you know, the, the results of the Kansas City Chiefs. We also covered El Chapo and we covered the Netflix documentary, Making of a Murder. I definitely enjoyed the conversations that we had today. Uh, guys, I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, what were your thoughts on, uh, you know, the interviews and the discussion that we had today? Yeah, Austin, I think one thing we do really well is that we bring in people who are fascinating, you know, relevant to uh, particularly the Houston scene today. We kind of had a Houston-centered episode. And so, you know, I like to rep H-Town. That's a uh, rap term that I'm learning from going back and listening to the uh, rap music that Jay Leasy uh, encouraged me to go to. So I'm, I'm kind of getting up on it myself. But uh, yeah, great, great H-Town episode and uh, great stuff from Josh Cook and from uh, James of Race to the Moon, uh, a band that I am now an enormous fan of and encourage you to become a fan of as well. And speaking of past episodes, uh, you know, this past week we had episode 23, which we had the interview with uh, Elliot Coffey. And then in episode 24, we had the interview with Lindsay Schnell. And... Uh, I was kind of surprised on on Facebook. And first off, we definitely encourage everyone to go to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, leave us comments and feedbacks. Uh, Also, check out our iTunes page. Give us a five-star review. But in particular with Lindsey Schnell's interview, uh, we had a lot of people from Oklahoma that weren't happy that we broached the subject of, uh, you know, violence in sports, and specifically Joe Mixon. I think a lot of people thought we were attacking uh, their star running back. And uh, Kevin, I know that you spent a lot of time interacting with, uh, you know, I, I don't know if they're listeners or people that just want to comment on the subject, but what were some of your thoughts on, you know, kind of what you had seen on social media transpire from that interview? Well, I would never want to insult someone who has taken the time to listen to the podcast. Uh, you know, like I've said, if you're a listener, I'm a big fan of yours, but I get the impression from these things that they didn't actually listen before commenting. And it's just, you know, more proof that the loudest people on the internet are often the least well-informed and uh, also the least interesting too. But we had some really deplorable comments and this is, um, you know, I hesitate to say it's an Oklahoma thing. But it, maybe it could be like this guy, William Edwards, uh, his background on Facebook is, and, and I mean, I don't have to go to his Facebook, just clicking on his profile right here. The day I stopped bow hunting is the day I stopped breathing. That's sort of the tagline for his Facebook profile. But he said, I'd lay the girl out too, exclamation mark. If she didn't want it, then she should not have started it. So that's the sort of really insightful, informed commentary we're getting from people on the Facebook post. Um, but, you know, again, it's good to start discussions. Whenever you start discussions, you're going to have ignorant people weigh in. So I'm not really discouraged by it but um, we are hearing some this guy Anthony Huggins has commented three separate times on this one post something about her spitting on him which I've I've seen nowhere any credible outlet saying that she spit on him and again the video has not been released yet so anybody saying they've seen the video is probably lying yeah it's just a it's a firestorm of criticism a lot of it directed at Lindsay or us for having her on and I think it's more proof that you know People try to silence women's voices. Uh, They really don't like it when it's a woman pointing out a problem in society and they don't want to hear it. And we've certainly seen lots of evidence of that, um, you know, throughout our various social media posts. So thanks to all the people who did listen and who left, uh, you know, thoughtful commentary, whether it was pro or negative. Um, But there were, of course, a lot of people who left stuff that I, you know, was not edifying for anyone. So as always, you can find all of our content on our website at weeklybrewcast.com. And of course, you can search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, Jeremy, we were definitely glad to have you uh, join us as well in uh, the discussion with, uh, you know, the Texans and then, uh, you know, El Chapo and Making of a Murder. I thought you provided some interesting perspective uh, in terms of uh, the mental aspect of, uh, you know, that Netflix documentary. Oh, yeah, definitely. Also, I loved uh, uh, it's a very interesting case. I encourage everyone to watch the documentary. Um, and the, it is a very interesting series as well as just uh, sort of take a step back from it and uh, sort of look at it from some other perspectives um, and don't uh, formulate your views just based off of one source. Very true. That's why you should always go to multiple sources instead of saying, I heard from one guy. I mean, I think that you should always verify your source. That's something that we are taught uh, in journalism, no doubt. But a uh, very fun episode. I know I enjoyed recording it again. This has been episode 20 of the weekly brewcast and uh, as always we hope that you've enjoyed it for my co-host this week kevin cook jeremy paxton i'm austin staten we'll see you next week you've been listening to the weekly brew 